Get ready for the greatest roast of all time. The Roast of Tom Brady. A Netflix live event happening May 5th. Hosted by Kevin Hart, the seven-time world champion gets his cleats held to the fire by famous friends and frenemies on an unforgettable night where everything is fair game. Tune in on May 5th at 5 p.m. Pacific time for The Roast of Tom Brady, live only on Netflix. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18. Plus. Mary redeemed a $50,000 cash prize playing Chumba Casino this year. I was only playing for fun. So winning this was a dream come true. Chumba Casino is America's number one social casino experience. It's serious fun. With over 80 casino style games to choose from, you too could win life-changing amounts of cash. Be like Mary. Log on to ChumbaCasino.com and give them a whirl. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void or prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. The voice in the preceding commercial was not the actual voice of a winner. It's the Autosport Podcast. We ask what it means to be in the zone for an F1 driver with author Clyde Brolin. Well, Formula One, like the rest of motorsport, is very much a mental sport. We often talk about the the mental strength of the great drivers, the mental weaknesses that sometimes make the difference between the great and the merely very, very good. And that's a topic we're going to talk about today. I'm your host, Ed Straw, and joining me is something of a specialist in this field when it comes to motorsport and indeed the, the wider world of sports, Clyde Brolin, the the author, as uh, as I'm going to call you, uh, the writer of, of two uh, two books, one specifically about Formula One, Overdrive, Formula One in the Zone, and the second, which does touch on motorsport, but also the wider world of sport, all sorts of big names from a wide variety of sports in there, which is his more recent book, In the Zone. Both are available from uh, Amazon and the usual usual retailer, so that, that's the, the plug. So, um, Clive, why, why did you write these books <laughs> that's a other, very... than for, other than for fame and fortune <laughs> yeah that didn't quite pay off but um it's a very good question i mean i suppose you know as a teen we were supposed to find our heroes in our teens aren't we and um my, my teenage years happened to coincide with Ayrton senna's or Ed senna's years in formula one um so i was pretty much there was no chance of escape for me that was when, when i started hearing 
I mean, watching him, A, and then hearing how he was able to describe what he was doing, his outrageous ability and his sort of mystical descriptions of life at the limit, they were what really you know that they captivated me as a youngster and um and in particular of course there's his famous account of of qualifying in monaco which jerry donaldson got out of him in in an amazing interview which is in part of f1 folklore now i mean it it's that that probably was the interview that that changed my life really because ever since then i've been on a quest to try and understand how what human beings are capable of someone like Senna of course is a special kind of talent in his own right but um to, to he when he surprised himself and found this limit was was more expandable than he thought um this this is what really got me into it and you know, eventually um I, I made it into the F1 paddock as a writer myself in 1998 unfortunately a bit too late to find Senna my, my quest then was to try and find pretty much every single Formula One driver there was and and try and find out had they been anything through anything similar to this had 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 uh you know what is life like at the limit when what happens to your mind in these sorts of moments? And I mean, what, what, what was amazing, what initially amazing, and then gra- I gradually just got used to it, was the fact that pretty much every single driver who had reached Formula One level or even, even any professional driver, they've all had experiences like this, all of them. And not only that, they are... Um, they are they are so important to them. They're, they're they're bigger even when they look back on their careers. They're they're more important than even the trophies and even titles. You know, they these moments are just the moments when they are performing and doing what they do best, and just everything is working. That they, they they treasure these moments. I mean, I'll give give you one example. I mean, Fernando Alonso. I spoke to him actually just very. Uh, it was it was after it was just after he'd won his two world championships and he'd just switched to McLaren and you know he'd he'd been describing how even in testing these moments are so special because at the time it was tire war and everything else there were moments when the car would be just absolutely in this perfect perfect edge and it, he described it as uh, that you arrive at a point where you cannot imagine doing anything more to improve and the car feels like a a scale trick you're not you're not inside a Formula One car anymore but a toy and you know and I pushed him a little bit and say so are these visits to the zone more important than winning a race or even a championship and he and he, he paused for a bit and then he said yeah you know winning a, a race or a championship leads to recognition from everybody it's sort of a more of an external thing so that's good for self-confidence which is important for a driver because you know everybody thinks you're doing well but when it comes to the personal feeling this sensation is better to come back to the the kind of formative experience of, the, of your interest in in the zone it is this defining thing that the monaco 1988 lap by Ed and of the pole lap when he uh, he just reached this this level there's a lot of kind of mysticism and religiousness if you read the the, the start of, of your book overdrive which is the formula one focused one it starts there and talks about the uh you know the role of, of god the outer body stuff all, all all these things so let's just kind of dig into that and is that the the, the kind of a genuine defining version of of in the zone or is it one of those things that's just become just become the myth and there's the sort of the standard thing that's that's referred to yeah i mean obviously when, when someone like Senna finds it uh as you as you say he describes it in these incredible poetic terms and i mean and to be fair it was it, he didn't actually do this interview until over a year after it happened you know so it was uh it, it wasn't like he was going and talking about this in the press conference afterwards and describing it like this but um yeah i mean to me it it, it is as close as as we as we can find really to a defining sort of version of it in 
in Formula One anyway. I mean, it's, I, yeah, that people will take the, the sort of mystical, spiritual side of it as in, in in their own way, depending on what their own beliefs are. But, um, you know, the, the irony is, of course, I, I spent all these years chasing down drivers. The only guy I couldn't get was Senna, but I could get the people who had been close to him over all these years, and I could speak to everybody, you know, his family, and uh, and even and Jerry himself, who did the interview, and he he, he was... He, he described how when Senna was talking, it wasn't. It wasn't. It was one of these moments where he was shaking. His voice was quavering. His eyes were misting up. You know, we saw that sometimes in some of his press conferences. So he said it, this happened when he was saying something that he could really know, knew was powerful within him and something he really wanted to get across. Um, I mean, as, as it happens, I, I I started using the Senna lap as shorthand when I was interviewing drivers after that because there are so many. The actual phrase in the zone is a bit of a sort of nebulous phrase in itself, and even in English. So when I'm speaking particularly to drivers from other countries that, you know, if I was struggling to get across what I really meant by this, I'd, I'd sort of say Senna Monaco 88 and they'd all go, oh yeah, okay, yeah, I know exactly what you mean. And um, and some people just brought it up by themselves. I mean, I happened to be talking to Alain Menu, the, the touring car driver one day, and uh, he, he he out of nowhere just revealed that he would actually he was actually there um, that day because he he'd been racing in Formula 3 that weekend at Monaco and he was watching at the chicane in a private area where only because he had a Formula Three pass, he could he could watch, and so he he, he brought this up himself that he he was watching Senna come towards that chicane, and he said he was visibly braking eight meters later than anybody else. But, but that wasn't the amazing bit; that it was the car that was amazing because all the others were sort of a bit unbalanced under braking, and he could see that. But he um, but Senna's car was apparently just. It was. It was. Nothing was happening to it, and and he and he made this noise about, how, <laughs> but what it was the sound it was making as it approached the chicane, and he, it's something like, <sighs> and I I, I can't, unfortunately can't quite re- reproduce the sound of a McLaren. You managed um, to work out how to spell it for the book. Yeah, right? I, I did. I put ph 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 ph, <laughs> and that's about as far as close as I could get. But um, it, you know, he, he himself, Alan Menu says that he was not. He was a really down to earth guy. He didn't believe in any of this sort of stuff, and. He, he, if he hadn't seen that lap, he'd have, he'd have said um, that, yeah, okay, it was, people, yeah, it's just a crazy way to talk about it. It's, it was just a great lap, whatever, get over it. But then because he, he saw that and he saw that particular moment, he, honestly, it struck him. And he told me that as he was talking, he was getting goosebumps just remembering it. And and then he he said, you know, he was in no doubt at all that it was it would have been the same, you know, all the way around the rest of the lap. But, I mean, you know, Monaco, of course, is this is just a place where these experiences can come around seems seemingly more naturally than anyone else it's such a ridiculous place to drive a formula one car that that to, to push to the limit around it um it's it's uh it's just one of these classic places that it happens and uh it comes up time and again in all the interviews i've done people everyone from people like john surtees and sterling moss through to um olivier panis obviously had a good day of days there Yano trulli and and and, and, here, and here's the thing the, the guy who was soundly thrashed that day in the other mclaren alain prost he i i hadn't even brought this up with him when i when i when I first started speaking to him and he I was just speaking to him about in his autobiography he spoke about he had about three or four moments in his career where he just felt completely at one with his car he, it started with one special experience he'd had in karting and he was always looking for that experience again later through his career and but you know without prompting he turned up as the first example he could think of for when this was happening to him was Monaco in 1986 two years before um, the big one and he, he he remembers that whole weekend he said like the whole race he was flying but to me it felt like I was driving at only 30 miles an hour you know and he said he wouldn't describe it as a trance because it implies you're not in control it was the complete opposite your mind is still focused but yeah it's really happiness and then you you 
know that both you and the car are under control, and yet you are quick. And then, and then you know, he, he then apologised almost for himself. You know, he said everybody has their own feeling. Ayrton spoke about this in mystical terms, but for me, it was the opposite. For me, it was completely practical. Do you work hard on your setup, and this work is what leads to the result, not the kind of trance thing. And it, and it's an achievement that doesn't happen very often, but it's more pragmatic for me. You know, it's the classic difference between the two of them, isn't it? How we, how we always sort of <laughs> see see the classic image, and, and he admitted, yeah, maybe that's why it's a bit more boring. My version of the thing but you know everybody has this for this this experience in some way or other and uh yeah it depends how poetic you decide to describe it <laughs> well I, I tend to, to lean towards the more the more boring way of doing. i mean the way i look at it let, let's let's take the monocle let's say if we just say as a given let's say that was the perfect lap there was no more time in the car there's always more time in the yes, car but let's say is. let's say it could only have been a few hundredths fast or whatever the laws of physics govern what the car can do and the driver's job is to get as close to that maximum, be right on the edge of the, of the envelope. And in order to to do that, to be that good, you have to be processing everything as quickly as as you quickly as you possibly can. And it, it comes down to the to get sort of a bit more prosaic about it is that the kind of conscious versus unconscious processing, isn't it? And the way I interpret what Senna says there isn't it's not really about some mystical thing or antibody. It's just that he wasn't thinking about it. And by not thinking about it consciously, it was all being done. It's, sometimes people talk about that being on instinct. So he was responding to everything the car, every bit of feedback the car gave him. So let's take the, the braking example from menu. If the car wasn't moving around a great deal, because obviously when you're some braking, the driver does have to have a little bit of input to keep it balanced. And so I sort of think, well, Senna must have been reacting to the earliest indication precisely to in order to, to get this lap. So that's the... And, and that's what drivers are attempting to do, and, that, and that's sort of the way I tend to interpret it, which may lack a bit of poetry, but but it's for me, it's it's relentlessly fascinating. Yeah, I, I completely agree with you, and, and I think these experiences can happen to everybody as well. And um, I mean, you know, this whole phrase of being in the zone is it is completely it's about stopping thinking and just letting every scrap of natural ability that you have come flooding back out, and it doesn't matter. Um, you know, it doesn't, doesn't matter even what level you're at. You know, this zone can kick in at, at every level. If if you play football, you can you can kick in in the World Cup final, or it can kick in if you're having a kickabout in the park with your mates. We all have sort of <laughs> glorious days where everything pings into the top corner, and that's just that's our version of the zone, whatever level we're at. But I mean, you know, to a top a top sports person, you know, that the actual sensation of being there is is heaven on earth, really, because it's you know all the from, we, we see the result from the outside. You know, we see. If if these guys are at the top of their game, you know it can happen in any sport. It can be a one four seven. It can be a uh, a mazy run into the and, and then a, a, the curling shot into the top corner. It can be a perfect gymnastics routine. It can be just some something magical. We see that result from the outside, and it looks amazing to us. But um, even that doesn't compare to the sensation they're getting from the inside, turning off all this conscious thought, which is not an easy thing to do. It's not an easy thing to do in any in any walk of life, especially if you're doing something which is being watched by millions of people around the world and every single uh, mistake you make or anything like that will be you know pounced upon and you'll be having to go through all sorts of <laughs> you know it's, it's it's not easy to to do that um and yet when when they find it this is this is why i suppose it's so magical they they they, they can escape it's, it's like the ultimate escape doing what they've been spent their whole lives doing 
and letting all the magic come back out. I mean, if I can just give, give one quick example from another sport, Nadia Comaneci, the, the famous gymnast who, who did the first ever perfect 10, which again, coming back to the point about perfection, that doesn't exist and that didn't exist then. And then since then, they've changed the scoring system in gymnastics. But in 1976, she did a perfect 10 at the Olympics. And, uh, and she describes it well because she said that, you know, when things go perfectly, it just, it does feel magical. All your accomplishments and all the work you've done go into this sort of imaginary bag. And then when you're out there, you have to focus to get the routine you've done over the years out of this bag. So in, in gymnastics, the ultimate is the Olympics. And of course, in sports like that, they get one chance every four years. It's not one chance every two weeks to get to nail it. So it's even bigger um, pressure. But yeah, you know, to, to be at the best at that particular time, it doesn't matter how you were 10 minutes ago, you have to be the best right now. But, uh, you know, it's this, it's this magic. And, and of course, you know, a life of training is crucial for, for, for all, these, all these activities. No one comes out of, of the womb driving a racing car no one comes out of the room playing the piano all these things have to be learned and but that's a sort of conscious process of putting all the um all, all the all the knowledge together and all the feeling and all the uh, so that it becomes as automatic as you can and then to get in the zone it's just to let it all it's it's you're filling in this this subconscious bag so then you can just let it all fly out when you really need it it's one of the interesting things, again, this, this applies to many sports, that often you'll get examples of, say, former players, sports people who were, were good but not great, but make great coaches, for example. And coaching and doing are slightly different disciplines, but at the same time, often you'll get those who were, who were merely good or very good. They didn't, they didn't sort of lock this stuff into their subconscious so early, so that the greats will often learn stuff really quickly. And they won't even. They might have learned it so young. They won't. They don't even realise what the process or the mechanism is. It's just they do it. And sometimes, it's like if someone's explaining something to you, they understand really well, and they might as well just be saying, "Well, you just do it." It's like well, that, that doesn't help me. <laughs> and and I think that's the interesting thing. It's building upon that, upon upon that that those things that they they have, as you said, sort of bagged up and locked away and it's just there and you don't even have to think about it which is why I think you do get these examples of of great coaches who weren't great Brad Gilbert in tennis springs to mind who was a good player but not a great player but regarded as a as a great as a great coach just because maybe they have spent more time thinking about it working at it which is why this whole idea of in the zone is so elusive because perhaps those who are best at getting into it won't necessarily entirely understand how how they achieve it and then you've got this great duality of elite sports people spend all of their time trying really hard to get into a, a mental space where they're not trying really hard so it can be their best. I mean what what greater polar opposites can you can you get there? That's right. That's right. It is it, you know I, I, for 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 the first at least half I mean I've I've been chasing down these sports people for now for 20 over 20 years to to <laughs> in in all these different sports and and you're absolutely right for for ages I I was I kept sort of asking them how okay this is an amazing situation how do you get there and, and 99 times out of 100 it was um i don't know it just it just happens it just happens on these magical days and and i think that, that is still the case in, in 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 a lot of it but in fact i mean obviously since the, you know these sub, these areas like sports psychology have become more um uh prevalent in 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 sport that's really what sports psychology is all about it's trying to maximize people's chances of getting in the zone by finding little ways of uh, of sort of edging the mind into the right space and th there are certain things which we can maybe touch on later but there's things like meditation visualization all these 
little, um, well, they're not little techniques, they're pretty major techniques for trying to find it because that that is the holy grail, finding the zone at will. And um, I, very few people have managed to do that, but um, they're all trying. They're trying all the time. And that's really what <laughs> elite sport is about these days because, you know, you know, everybody's physically brilliant. Everybody in, in Formula One is a, is a brilliant driver. That, and, and everybody in, you know, uh, you know, basketball, all these, all these types of, they're, they're brilliant at what they do. It's just finding that little edge when it matters. And, uh, yeah, as you say, it's, it's, it's so strange that you've put all this effort in to stop thinking. And, yeah. <laughs> oh, it's, it's incredibly difficult. It's the, um, you know, trying to relate it to real life. I was thinking the example, it's like if you're driving a car somewhere and you're doing it, you're doing it properly well, but you're not really paying attention. You kind of think, oh, well, how have I got here? But you've not been driving badly necessarily. In some cases, you haven't. <laughs> but you know, if, if you know, just just driving around on the road, and the, you know, the the example of the lap at Monaco is just a massively high level example of that. So it comes back to what you're saying about everyone kind of experiences this in in various various different ways. Some more mundane than uh, than behind the wheel of a Grand Prix car. But let's, let's try and have a look at the the current crop of drivers many of which are quoted in your book. Obviously, we've recently had the Monaco Grand Prix. Lewis Hamilton won there. It's amazingly only his third win, though. Even though he's, he's tremendously fast. That was his third win in Formula 1. He also won in the, the junior categories there. But it's interesting to look at someone like Hamilton. He, he said, actually, in Monaco, that he feels he's been average this, this year so far. And we've actually seen this the past few years, that at the start of the year, he struggled a little bit with the car. He hasn't got it quite exactly how he wants it. And then he's gone on this great run as the season's gone on when he's when he's got it right. And he, he seems to me to be today a great example of a driver who's able to to get into that zone more often. And it's partly because of circumstances, because he's in the right team, he's got a competitive car, he's also a great driver. So would you agree with that? Do you think he's he's kind of found that equilibrium? I I absolutely do. I mean he even very early in his career, I mean, when I spoke to him very early as well, and he, even back then, he was saying, you know, you're not trying to be in the zone once or twice a year. You're trying to be in the zone at every race, and you know, although, it, although that I, because I, I, that's in that's in overdrive, isn't it? Early on, and I almost feel like he's defining the zone a little bit differently. Yeah, no, I, I, I think I make that point there. It's, it's, it's uh, I think that was. There are. This is a, going back to the problem of, of the actual phrase. It's it has different levels. It has different levels. But I mean, he, you know, when for example, when he was thinking about the original Senna lap, he he described that as beyond the zone. He said that's heaven. And so, um, but he, he's definitely reaching this level of, of heaven on a so so much more regular basis. He's helped, of course, by having this amazing team situation that's that's been so stable for in the last few years. Um, but if you if you look at Monaco, I mean, of course, he still had a big challenge in the race. I mean, was he in the zone in the race when he's getting chucked about on the car I mean uh, you know on those tires he was on the medium tires but it, it, that reminded me a little bit I spoke to Martin Brundle once and he he, he described when he was once in a, in a Zach speed in 1987 just getting to the end of the race to him was an absolute heroic feat because it was trying to spit him out at every single corner I don't imagine that Lewis was still having to go through that kind of level on on in the Monaco Grand Prix but um so if where he was definitely in the zone in the Monaco Grand Prix was in qualifying at the end of it that final lap was I mean you can see the video and it's just almost to, to, to this elusive perfection that we're talking about it seemed to be it's so so perfect everything was placed beautifully it's just that little moment at Raskas that that took it away from being but, but also there's there's a as there always are at Monaco on that lap there's there's a hand there's there's plenty of corners where there's little mid-corner corrections but again coming back to that thing of picking up the the signals at the earliest point and correcting it and then you just get so it's a tiny adjustment rather than a big opposite lot of like you did have to have it at, at Raskas so that 
that I guess is the the sort of way you look at it. You think, well, you've just been onto it really, really quickly, and any time loss is is minimised. So again, it's kind of your battle with the laws of physics. You've gone, you've just strayed a fraction outside the performance envelope, but you bring it back right to the edge of it quicker than you might do on a bad day. Yeah, and, and I'm sure there are there are drivers from all the other cars looking at that and thinking. God, well, okay, if you're sat in a Mercedes with everything else, then of course you're going to be able to do that. But still, it's it's not quite that simple because around, particularly around a track like Monaco, which is so crazy, but it's, and the pressure was on him, wasn't it? Because Bottas has, has been has upped his level seemingly this season, and so he was right up there, and he had every right to have claimed that pole for himself. And it's the most important pole of the year, and everything else. So he only only had this one chance to do it, and um, yeah, and everything came together for him. And that's the that's one of these definitions of yeah finding the zone but but it's interesting as well because we do have a greater insight into the drivers nowadays than we perhaps did in the past in that you can listen to the radio there's a lot of radio traffic from Lewis Hamilton when he's being chased by Max Verstappen and that always interests me as well the role that communication with the team plays and I I think a lot of people look at it in rather one-dimensional terms like oh he's just moaning and there was a little bit of that but the role that that those complaints that Hamilton was making play in terms of keeping himself at a good level and the way the team reacts to it as well, because I'm sure they'd have just wanted to say, Lewis, just get on with it, it's fine. It's not a problem. But you hear all these different, which is obviously Lewis complaining about it's going to take a miracle to do this. And eventually you had James Wells coming on saying, yeah, you come on, you can do this for us. It's like, right, we're going to do everything we can to accept, yeah, we were wrong, you can be the hero here. And it's it's not necessarily playing to to sort of Hamilton's sort of a man's less desire to try and massively over adversity, but it's, it's that kind of attempt where the team can kind of keep the driver in the zone and the driver can say things that that kind of release a little bit of that pressure or events or so it's really hard to know without being in Lewis Hamilton's head how much of that he was just spent thinking oh this is terrible and or, or how much that venting allowed him just to do what he was doing uh, it's 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 a really fascinating thing to try and make. you'll never get a clear answer well, that's right. Yeah, I mean, yeah, we, 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 the closest we can get into their head during the race these days, at least we can hear these radio conversations and we can find out if if they're, if they're there or not. I mean, those sort of things, yeah, they're, we always you always overanalyze these things and they can be are they are they little mind games are they what are they doing are they are they broadcasting to the world because they know that it's all it's but um, yeah, those sort of little. Um, adjustments are, seems to be that things in a, in a long race like that, no one can stay in the zone for for two hours really it's it can't it can't be done but if you you sort of bring yourself back up and down again i mean i actually spoke to some um uh iron man triathletes the the world the world record holder for that described how no one he he, his his race lasts seven and a half hours so it's a little bit longer still but um but for him even in the ultimate physical um race like that it's still all about concentration he described that how how he has to find this level of concentration and he bring himself back down it, when he gets gets out of it he has to bring himself back up again because he doesn't have a radio to anybody but but this this might be a decent technique for for a racing driver who who can then sort of just get a little moment of of snapping back into it and maybe these are the things that Lewis has 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 learned help him along the way but actually that that Monaco race is an interesting example because it was a race of pace management i think of his last 53 laps 51 of them were in the one minute 17 bracket so he's driving very 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 much within himself yeah. and that's almost the hardest situation because again coming back to the center at monaco i think the famous thing is when he, he crashed at portier because he eased off because it was all fine yeah. and he went he went slower um and again i think that's re- that's referred to isn't it with the, how that mistake happens and i guess perhaps that's that monaco situation was tailor-made for a driver not being in the zone because they they were doing something that was not it's not natural to drive a race car 
so slowly to think about size you know that that is what perhaps made that win under pressure so impressive because he was probably battling to actually be in the right mental space to, to do what he needs to do yeah it's interesting isn't it i mean this um you know monaco is, is, is such a particular track and it's, it's um, just because the margins are so tiny aren't they yeah and i mean yeah as you, as you say easing off is so far away from what any of these um, racing drivers wants to be doing and you know I think I don't know how many years we have to go back now to when they were going flat out around Monaco com- completely during the race I think maybe very it was during the refueling era or I or maybe I don't know if it's been the same since then but um uh yeah and uh, that it is a battle to <laughs> when, when you're not perform- when you have to perform at 97% and you're used to 100% it's not easy and as you say Senna Senna in fact had 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 to speed up briefly before because Cross put in a couple of um, fastest laps behind him, and and he was still about I don't know how many, three, nearly a minute ahead. But and, but he felt he had to respond, and he and he did, and then that sort of and then Prost gave up, and then by then he'd he'd also give he can then he could then go back down to to this sort of ninety seven percent pace, and that's what caught him out. But it's so, funny because there's a reference to what how Prost saw it. Prost probably thought, "Oh, I put in a quick lap, and that spooked him." Yeah, and he came back and found no, he'd slowed down at that. Point. Yeah, so, oh, okay. <laughs> yeah, exactly, exactly. <laughs> but this also brings us back to the point of what you can do in race is to kind of ask questions of people and put people off their stride and that kind of thing because that's why I thought Verstappen's move on Hamilton was was a brilliant attempt because it was it was it was on the line it was it was okay it was safe enough they could get through it but he he knew he had to ask the question to to just create that create that problem for Hamilton to deal with because you never know if it, you know some drivers would would be thrown by it and just not make the right decisions and suddenly thinking oh what do I do you get caught in two minds so it's the fascinating thing about racing that even if it's not always wheel banging down the main straight between Mansell and Senna at, at Barcelona there's always things going on particularly in a in a tense race like that yeah I mean the, the, the interesting about motor racing of course is there's no direct sort of face-to-face interaction like there is in a lot of sports uh you know maybe boxing is the most extreme example but then you know if, all things like football and everything else, tennis, you can see the other guy and you can sort of try and dig into his brain with your own laser vision. But in, in motor racing, of course, you're hidden behind a helmet, you're, in the, you're not ever facing your opponent. But So the only way you can, you can try and play these games is to, um, yeah, harry them, do whatever you can. I mean, Verstappen was obviously doing that's the ultimate example of that. Um, and, yeah, it is, it's... Of course, everybody's trying to unbalance everybody else from this magical state. They don't want somebody else to be easing into a nice, um, relaxing zone experience. They want to get them out of it as soon as possible. And in, in some sports, it's you know you can do that more directly, but in Formula 1, this is the way to do it, yeah. It's interesting as well, because there was clearly a, a certain level of stress for Hamilton in that race. And I do wonder, and in fact, I suspect it probably would be the case, that because it was Verstappen behind him, rather than, say, Vettel, I think that probably made it harder, because I think, I think Hamilton versus Verstappen is a, a battle that's not quite been resolved yet. Whereas Hamilton Vettel, Hamilton thinks, yeah, I've, I've got him because Vettel keeps coming off worse. And that's when it becomes interesting again because you've got every every time now, I feel you've got Hamilton and Vettel going wheel to wheel. I feel like Hamilton can just do what he does. Whereas Vettel, because he's had so many mishaps recently and, and lost out so many times against Hamilton, he'll be that's the point where it's almost impossible for him to be in that zone, which you can have one overtaking. It's just you make the move, you react to what the car's doing, and you try and get through it. But Vettel will be thinking of all that history that, oh, I've I've got to not, not make that mistake, not do that wrong. And it just becomes that thing of, right, I'm going to make the move, don't mess it up. And, of course, what are you going to do? You're going to mess it up because you're, you're thinking about it, you're second-guessing yourself. 
and and that's that's that other dynamic, isn't it? When you've got one driver who's maybe got control over another, whereas in the Hamilton Verstappen case, I think maybe Hamilton saw Verstappen as a bit more of a of a wild card. Yeah, I mean, the, the very the, the the word you kept mentioning there is Vettel is thinking. Vettel at those moments now is thinking. He's having to think because because now he knows. Okay, the first time he did it, people can get away with it. Once he's done it two or three times, then suddenly it's a problem, and he knows that whatever reaction he might be sort of already thinking about whatever reaction he's going to get if it happens again and he's and suddenly bang as you say it's a self-fulfilling prophecy it happens again um so Vettel is Vettel is a is a magnificent driver and he has in the past done amazing things even in these sort of race race situations there's almost now a cliche that he can't race at all but he can he's done all sorts of amazing things in races over the time he just has this mental blockage now on those particular battles and uh he yeah i mean it it, it, it <laughs> it's one of these things i mean so hamilton can get away with one now he's he's fine if, if he happens to do something like that it'll just be okay oh, it was a one-off whereas if vettel the next time it happens to vettel it's like oh he's he, forget it vettel's over but i mean vettel himself is a has his own um you know ways of getting in the zone and mental mentally he's he can be as strong as anybody you know and no one wins four world titles without no, no matter how brilliant his car may have been those, those years you know he he's still nailed them and um you know he he actually i mean somebody i spoke to for this second book in the zone because uh, he was he did a really good description of how he uses visualization particularly before qualifying to um to to get himself, you know, we, we see these classic images, and this goes back to Senna as well. Senna used to sit in the in the garage with his eyes shut sometimes, and then picturing every single corner. That's Vettel describes eloquently how he does that before the race, but now before qualifying, um, uh, it's obviously something much harder to do in a race. And um, but it's still, you know, it's it's quite it's, that's another one of the key elements towards um, uh, performing at the limit. Um, this visualization and, and Leclerc also, by the way, is 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 a big fan into that. He, I mean, I spoke to him a couple of years back, and he was describing how he he also uses this imagery. He calls it Im- imaging, and he uses imagery constantly throughout the weekend and and building up. He, he's trying to picture every single thing that's going to happen, and so it's all prepared in advance, you know, in his brain. The, the really interesting case as well are that the, maybe the lesser drivers who are able to either they are able to get themselves force themselves up to a higher level consistently perhaps Nico Rosberg is a good example of that a bit harsh to call him a lesser driver I, I think anyone would say Nico Rosberg isn't quite the same level of driver as, as Hamilton is he almost is but he did beat him to the world championship which is incredible one of 33 world champions I've got a lot of respect for what Rosberg was able to do but then you also have the other drivers who have their days Jano Trulli's always one who springs to mind for me brilliant Monaco pole lap you know, the odd great driver, Suzuka 2009, when he finished second to to- for Toyota, for example, was a very high-level drive, managed to jump Hamilton in the pits. And yet, other times you're looking at it and thinking, well, where's that Where's that performance the, the rest of the time? So it's interesting when you get... It's almost more interesting, Kate, the, the ones who aren't quite at that level all the time. Uh, I, I just find these cases fascinating. I mean, what would you make of, say, the Rosberg example? Because he's a, he's a fascinating case. Well, absolutely right. And as, as, as you say, there are, there are great sports people who maybe have one amazing event a year they're a great and they're, they're still amazing of course but they're up against somebody who's doing it week in week out and they will instantly look you know not quite perfect and someone like Rosberg is is, is a fan, fascinating example because he knew he knew within himself that okay I'm up against Lewis who is brilliant and he is brilliant but 
to, to turn himself around, he focused on the one thing that maybe he could find an edge in. And he really, I mean, that year that he did the championship, he's spoken about it and I've spoken to him about it. It's, it's about, um, he used a mind coach. He, he, he got into meditation. He, he really focused on his mind, which is the one thing that maybe he, he'd already been doing a little bit of that through his career, but he'd never focused on it to this extent. He just saw this as the one way that by, by absolutely nailing his mental process and, and turning himself around, that that is the only chance he had of beating Lewis. And he, and to his immense credit, of course, Lewis had problems that year and everything else, but still, you know, Nika came out. How many races did he win at the start of the year? He won. He he'd already set himself up for 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 a season of um, you know of really taking it to Lewis, and and by using by using every single scrap of his mind and and transforming the way he lived, the way he uh, I think he changed the way he uh, he dealt with jet lag, everything else. He just had to. He he looked everywhere to find the chink that could take him. You know, or that could that could push him. To that higher level, and he and he found it. So it shows that that anybody, any of these so-called lesser drivers, or, or who are just get a ninety-nine percent compared to the hundred percent guys, that this this mental side is is still there. There there are areas there that can be can be reaped and and and, and taken forward. And there's and you know, in, in other sports, mind coaches are absolutely everywhere. If you go to golf or tennis, you watch a tournament like that. Everyone has a mind coach. Some of them have two. <laughs> and it's uh, whereas Formula One has always had this slight reticence towards it. It's always been this a vague sort of macho thing. It's changing now. But um some some you know, not everybody has this ability. In fact hardly anybody does to, to be able to nail this permanently and to do it without any help. You know, we have they all have physical coaches these mental coaches are, are, are sort of the next step, and I mean, you know, <laughs> there there are, there are some brilliant ones out there, and, it, and you can t- you can tell when when they have an impact on people, and they can just take them up. It's, we can all be coached to a slightly higher level, and if and if it, and, and in Nico Rosberg's case, it took him to the World Championship, and then rightly, <laughs> he said, "Okay, that's as high as I'm ever going to get," and off he went. But uh, <laughs> yeah, it took it certainly took a lot of, out of him that year, and I think yeah. I played the part, and it's just I can't do that again. I mean, mate. People sort of say he knew he wouldn't do it again. He wouldn't be able to do it again because he was lucky. But I think it was more just about the toll it took, what it took to, to dig deep enough. But I think actually, as a result, it also made Hamilton a better driver because I think he realised from seeing what Rosberg did to him that you can leave absolutely no stone unturned. You know, if, if you can get 150 points to the good do it because you never know when you're going to have 151 points worth of bad luck because he had something like half of the major Mercedes engine problems yeah. that year but there were also a few races that year where you could look at what Hamilton did and say actually that that was you not quite delivering you can't you can't be at your best 14 out of 20 races you've got to be 20 out of 20 races or close to it and leave nothing on the table and I think that's actually made Hamilton almost sort of come of age as a driver and just become this absolutely relentless performer uh, performer now it's uh it's fascinating but this this thing about the sort of the lesser drivers because interesting like brundle you talked to in the, in the book overdrive and he says that he wishes he had a mind coach because he didn't deliver on his his potential and that if he'd, he'd done that maybe he'd have been able to do it but it is interesting these cases okay, so i mentioned Yano truly again so i think he was a fascinating driver who was stunningly quick obviously a driver you know reasonably uh reasonably well so what is it that makes a driver like that capable of these incredible things a few times and yet they can't get there, and it, you know, it must frustrate them as well that they that they can't do it. And you know, there's, there's so many different versions of this driver. David Coulthard was not 
very different driver to, to Trulli, but on his day, he could go toe-to-toe with Schumacher, hacking than anyone. It's just the day didn't come around often enough. Yeah, I mean, I think there's an extra complication in in Formula One and motor racing in general compared to other sports that there's a, you know, there's a, <laughs> a thousand horsepower beast that you have to get absolutely perfect as well before... Um, before we can start doing any of these own experiences, you know, an athlete can turn up and just run. A footballer just needs a ball here. It, the, the, this amazingly complex piece of kit also has to be nailed. And truly is an example of somebody who absolutely, if, if the car was to his absolute um, perfect liking, he could then produce these magical, magical, I mean, particularly in qualifying, obviously, but then he also did, occasionally managed it in the race. But it was, it was very much more, if, if he was, if everything was perfect for him, he could fly. And but it was if when things were slightly less perfect, which is ninety nine percent of the time, for, for and that's just the way Formula One is. You can you're hardly ever going to find a, this perfect car. Then, but, I, but I also felt Trulli was one of those ones who, once he got knocked off his stride, so like if free practice two didn't go well, he just couldn't recover from it. It's almost like he's not. It's like that. Uh, that's this weekend wrecked. So you've got. You've got all these other, so that's the kind of other aspect of it as well, isn't it? It's kind of that ability to get back on the horse. Rosberg was very good at that because he kept being, to use a boxing analogy, it's like Hamilton just kept knocking him out, knocking him down, and Rosberg just kept getting up and getting up just slightly better until he was eventually just able to to beat <laughs> to beat Hamilton to the title in that in that slugfest. So that's the other thing, isn't it? I guess that how robust you are, and I, I feel that's where Trulli was let down as well. So the chance of him getting all the way through to Sunday still without having been knocked down and just sort of oh, sort of stay down a bit now yeah it's interesting it? i mean it's, I, I remember once actually i was i was in i was at a test at um at silverstone and jürgen grobler the the olympic rowing coach um <laughs> for, for for team gb he was an east german who then came and coached people like steve redgrave and uh, matt pinson and all these guys and he I was I was I was doing an interview with him, and he'd he'd actually spoken to Trilly earlier on in the day, and and asked, you know, okay, so do you, do you have a mind coach? And Trilly said, no, 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 no. And and, and Jürgen Bollock could not believe it. He could not believe that anybody at such a high level in the sport would not be using something like that, because as you say, in in all these in other sports, including rowing, which is you know you'd think is the ultimate physical test. It's nothing to do with, um, you know, it doesn't seem like a, a mental sport, but yes. Even in rowing, the mental side is so critical, and he, he did a kind of double take. He couldn't, he genuinely couldn't believe it. And and I think someone like Yana would have really, really benefited from if, if, um, that that kind of thing. Oh, he's, um, he's he is one of the fastest drivers there's ever been in Grand Prix yeah. racing, and yeah, he's got one within a few poles. Yeah, the whole consistency thing. I mean, of course, you know that we often hear about um, in this sort of mind thing. We, we, we Jackie Stewart is someone who always crops to mind. I remember he. He um, told me something like the many sportsmen experience the zone once or twice a year, but somebody really good can create it on a regular basis and not have to wait for that day. And then he, you know, he had one of these Jackie Stewart type quotes: first you need experience and then knowledge, which you gain from experience. And if experience and knowledge are stitched together, then you get wisdom. And then you start really thinking about how you can do it. And then you get by the time you get maturity, the next stage, then the zone is, is unimportant because you're able to do it every every time. And, and even your bad days. Are better than the next guy's good good days, and you know. So that's that's I suppose the ultimate level of, of these things is if you can nail these things consistently, um, that's how you become a, a world a world champion. And, and without it, yeah, you might still be off the pace. Well, Stuart, I think is a good example actually because I think he was quite a self aware driver. She was saying, I, I think uh, Jackie Stewart. I've said before on on this podcast, I think 
if you have to pick a greatest Grand Prix driver, I think it probably is Stewart because there's no there's no weakness there. Um, other than when he overworked himself and, <laughs> and got ill, you know, there's always yeah. physical limits. But I think he's a great example of someone. And it, it does it does become a bit of a cliche because it's it's the, it's the thing. If you're someone like if someone like Senna and sadly no longer with us, everything you said becomes this this mystical, insightful thing. Where it's because Jackie Stewart's still around and saying mind management. People don't take it as seriously as they should. But he's a guy who really understands drivers. And I know there's examples of his interactions with some drivers have not worked. Um, but I almost feel that's more reflects on the drivers he was trying to, he was trying to help because he does understand that process of, of driving. I think he's a, he's, he's a great, I think he's a great authority on, on, on that actually, because he really, he really gets it. So a rare combination of an, of an all time great who probably is for the right person, quite a good coach, if you like. Well, the interesting thing about, um, Jackie Stewart is that for, for him, the, the whole, um, process of of preparing for a race involved ridding himself of emotion he 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 would wake up in the morning of a race day and he then he had this six hour process where it was all about blanking everything out he he wanted no distractions he wanted no emotional feeling to cloud his sort of perfect mental state when he went out into the racing car um and that is that's a a sort of he actually learned that because I, i don't know if it was I think it was before he was a racing driver. He, he was in clay, clay pigeon shooting, and clay pigeon shooting is one of these things where you have to be so focused and sort of zen-like um, uh, approach to to yeah f- finding the perfect stillness. It's all about stillness, and uh, and that is, I suppose, a version of that. It's, it's similar to meditation. It's like all, all these amid all the hubbub of a Grand Prix weekend, all the noise, all the excitement, all the everything else. Finding this inner calm is the secret to so many of these. Um, great sports people yeah very much so and i think uh, i think the the modern driver who doesn't attempt to do that is uh is, is selling themselves short it's interesting the different attitudes for example roman grosjean of current drivers who's a, i find a fascinating character you know he's, he's a he's a really good guy very popular quite emotional um when things are right capable of, of incredible things really i i, I think he's He's not quite the same as Truly. I think he's he's got to that level a bit more regularly, but he really struggles to get into that into that zone. But when he does, he, he's he's brilliant, and it, it seems very easy to knock him out of it and get distracted by things. So he's capable of these incredible things, but also these really ham-fisted moments, you know, crashing under the safety car in Baku, crashed on a warm-up like in Brazil in the wet Brazilian Grand Prix a few years ago. You know, in Monaco, he, he lost a place to crossing the white line, the PEX. It was just a stupid error for a driver with that much experience who, who just should should know that. But he's obviously done a lot of work with a mind coach, and, it, and it's worked for him at times. So he ha- he has delivered at this high level. And last year was another case in point where he managed to recover and had a really good second half of the season after a very difficult first part of the year and he was he was the midfield driver of the most Q3 appearances so I find him fascinating in that you know, I often often get quite a bit of criticism for being positive about him at times because of because of but he, he's just another great example of someone who's probably he's probably extended his shelf life as an F1 driver through the, the psychological help he's got but it's not taken him all the way to delivering what he could deliver yeah well i think that's true i mean I, he was he's very open about what he's the work he's done and i'm sure it has helped him i mean despite the, the things you mentioned but i mean of course we have to remember that formula one is this unique sport where it we've only got two guys or at the best four guys and maybe sometimes five or six who who can actually perform at the level which they're used to from all their years of growing up i mean you know 
that Grosjean dominated some of his earlier series, like like to the level that people like Leclerc and Rosberg and Hamilton all have. Um, and yet, it, here he is. The best he can hope for these days is a maybe a seventh if everything comes together. And these things eventually. And if you're constantly involved in those sort of midfield battles, then of course, yeah, things things are going to go wrong. It is a lot harder in the midfield. That's that's fair to say. Just wanted to come back to Sebastian Vettel. Actually, we talked about him. One area where he really does excel is in qualifying. Um, he last year was the driver that put together his three best sectors to get the theoretical best lap the most in qualifying. Um, that's a real strength of his. And you've talked about some of the methodologies he's got, and I think that's an underrated part of his game. Actually, what what he's able to to, to do, and it's, again, it's just fascinating that he can be good at one aspect of it of this, but another aspect of it. Currently, he's he's sort of struggling, and you just wonder: is that something? Is that something that's an eight, or if it just happens that he has a battle with with someone or Hamilton specifically, and it works, does that just sort of pack that all away? And that's in the past, and suddenly he's back. Can it just take one thing to get you back on the horse, as it were? Yeah, I mean, with, with a bit of luck, I think that that could well happen for him. I, I, you know, but <laughs> you, you tend to sort of then start taking around baggage, don't you? And um, and and it'll probably take him more than one. <laughs> <laughs> before before he's completely free of it, but um, well, it's particularly but, the case you get in sort of head to head sports, isn't it? Where sometimes you look at the record between a, a a great player and a lesser one, and you think, oh, that's a little bit odd because you've beaten him quite a lot, and you get something in tennis, snooker, things like this. So sometimes these anomalies, and sometimes it's a uh, sometimes it will be rooted in a clash of styles that perhaps changes it. But then once you've been beaten a few times, that, that if you're if you're a great performer. And then you're up against, oh, this guy who's not brilliant, but somehow he keeps beating me. Suddenly you, you sort of become the underdog, even though you clearly shouldn't be. Yeah, no, yes. Yeah, that is interesting. I mean, to, Vettel, to come back to, come back to the, the point you made about how brilliant he is at qualifying, I mean, I do put a lot of this down to the, the approach he has to qualifying. Clearly, that qualifying is a purer experience than racing. It's You can you can visualise qualifying, which is why why it's, it's so commonly done. And uh, whereas racing, you never quite know um, you, you can't you can't predict that on lap thirty seven you're going to suddenly come up against Lewis Hamilton or something like that. But but for, for these more manageable areas of sport and, and most other sports or, or or many other individual sports are, are more manageable like that. If say I don't know um, skiing or something like that, you, you you're going out for effectively a qualifying lap. I mean, I, I mean I've been lucky to speak to a couple of these great. Um, um, Skiers from from the past. Franz Klammer is one who has this had this amazing routine before on the night before he used to uh, lie down on his bed and, and shut his eyes and go through every single corner of the of the ski race. And um, Walter Röhl is another one who famously amazing around Arganil in uh, in in rallies. Uh, sorry, this is uh, um, around the forest of Arganil, even even in the fog. He he wants. I think he he ended up. Four minutes fifty nine seconds ahead of all the rest of the field, who are all within half a minute of each other. But he credited that through basically just going through everything in his mind the night before, mapping out every single thing. So he didn't care. He wanted it to be foggy the next day. This is this is the kind of preparation that that can be done in those sort of more manageable moments. Um, but yeah, as you say, racing. Yeah, it's, it's can't, it can't quite be managed like that. So you have to you have to then just find this. Confidence and and confidence is is the other elusive elusive part of this um, uh, <laughs> find finding perfection as a sports person and yeah you can lose it very quickly yeah very very much so uh, we have talked about Formula One quite a lot inevitably and uh, it's been great we touched on the other other sports as well in the zone the the second book has got 
all manner of interesting pe- people you don't necessarily always hear from in in sports that are perhaps not so popular in certain certain parts of the world and English speaking world but just really fascinating to to see the parallels uh, but you, you also obviously talk to other people in in motorsport um, we had the Indianapolis 500 recently uh, Simon Pagano fairly dominant win in the end um, but that's that's a, an interesting one isn't it because oval racing particularly that that kind of race it's it's very very high speed very if things do go wrong there's a very small small margin to, to get away with it and there's a hell of a lot going on in that in that sort of racing as well isn't there so that again another another dimension of that challenge to be at your best in that and Pagano has some uh has you've spoken to him in the past haven't you about, yeah about, I mean uh, his, his technique yeah well Pagano is is interesting I mean it's it's fascinating really that we just had the Monaco Grand Prix in the in the Indy 500 and they were both won by massive Senna fans Pagano was as, as big a a fan of Senna growing up as 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 Hamilton, he was obsessed with him to the point that like he 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 described him as not just idolising him, but he basically he's, he's he's lived his whole life by him, um, and uh, he so he 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 was particularly intrigued by what we've been talking about, how Senna was able to find these levels of concentration and and, and go into it, and um, uh, and he found it first in karting, and then he found it it was it was harder to find to re- reproduce it in. Um, once he started moving into cars, but he, so he, he again, like what we just mentioned with Rosberg, he focused on it and he, and he said, all right, I've got to work on this. And he, he has been using again, meditation for, for years. And, uh, and I mean, he, he clearly sees the benefits of it. Um, but yeah, Indy 500, of course, is, is about as far away at, at, at the, you know, the speedway is as far away a circuit as you can get from the Monaco, um, Grand Prix circuit, and yet both of these um, uh, events are, are classic for for getting zone experiences. You know, these it's it's eight hundred left turns, isn't it? The Indy five hundred, and uh, it's 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 again a sort of hypnotic effect. Even if you know, it's there's all sort of manic stuff going on in in the racing itself. The the, the you know the, what what they need to do to to get in the zone around Indy. Obviously, ludicrous speeds is, is is exactly the same thing, and and, and this sort of metronomic um, race as it as it works out is uh, very special. And clearly, Pagano was oh my goodness! He, of, of all the of all the performances from that from that day, including Monaco and Indy, he was he looked like the guy most in the zone, most un, unperturbable. There was nothing that he could do because he he nailed it. I mean, I actually spoke to him a couple of years back, and he'd even described once that. I've forgotten if it was 2016 or something. He came tenth, and he described then as almost a perfect indie. He was he was in the zone then. So if he, if he could then find the zone again, you know, when he's actually at the front and challenging for the win, and he and he obviously had the entire month nailed. That's another thing. I mean, I once spoke to Castro Neves about this, and he was saying that you know it's all about the month. It's it's changed a little bit now, but that you've got to build up, and you've just got to build up and build up and build up, just like Ram Monaco, of course, from the from the Thursday onwards. And it's all about that. When he had the boost, Pagano won the the road course race yeah. there in the build-up. But the other amazing thing is with, with Pagano's situation is he came into this year under real pressure for that drive. You know, looking like he'd be he'd be shuffled out. Already starting to hear rumours of who was being considered. Then suddenly he, he's leading the points. He's won the Indy Five Hundred. Roger Penske saying, "Yeah, he's going to be around around next year." And to do that, it, it's that thing, isn't it? About it's similar to the thing of trying to work really hard to get yourself into a position where you're not thinking about it and not you're not working really hard. It's that ability to when the stakes are at their highest, 
when basically you, probably your career is on the line and it's the biggest race you'll you'll ever win you know even without the career on the line indy's a huge deal and to go out there and almost to to when there's everything at risk to go out and just do what you do as if it doesn't matter is is an incredible thing and i think i think that's probably why it must be quite a serene place to to me, that's why the drivers must enjoy must take so much satisfaction out of that. It's just a not just a pure manifestation of what they do, but also just the almost the lightness of it must be fantastic. Yeah, I mean that's that is I suppose what top sport is about. It's not just having this moment when it doesn't matter, this moment of perfection. It's having it when absolutely everything is on the line. And as you say, it's they have to kind of trick themselves into into yeah, a driving like you know they're a kid going around a kart track when. There's 300,000 people watching and the, and the whole world on TV. And uh, it's, it's just about ignoring all that. And, it, and, and it's, it's about finding that magical state that made them love the sport in the first place. And uh, it's, it's certainly not easy. as we, you know, We've already gone through quite a, a lot of reasons why it isn't. And, um, but when, when a, a master is really <laughs> doing their stuff and letting it all flood out, you know, it, it doesn't matter. They stop thinking. They're not thinking about the audience. They're not thinking about uh, f- things that have gone wrong. They're not thinking about anything that's happened before. They're not thinking about anything that's happening in the future. It's all about the moment. You know, this this perfect moment. And um, yeah, if you if you can find that perfect moment, I mean, that you know, this the, the whole thing about this zone is that it's the it's actually the home of genius, not just in motor racing or even sport, but in any field. It's you know, it's when artists are at their most creative. It's when musicians produce their most sublime performances. When scientists make their breakthroughs. You know, we we all assume really we, we tend we tend to be taught that conscious thoughts. So we've got to think think about what we're doing and you know work work work. But um, these conscious thoughts. It's, it's it's when we give our subconscious free reign to do its natural thing that we can truly shine. And and, and it doesn't as a mentioned it doesn't stop with the stars either it's you know if whether we're a teacher or a chef or a nurse or you know taking an exam or cracking jokes down the pub you know it's we all to find the zone guarantees we're going to be our absolute best and we afterwards we might not even know why it went well what 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 was what was so special about it it just goes like a dream no and, and it's the it's the eternal battle for it that just makes it makes it so interesting and it, and it is universally applicable isn't it that and all the different techniques that's the thing that i one of the things i find fascinating just all the different ways that people have of doing it you know somebody who you know you get, you get some people who just dismiss the whole notion of the, the sort of the mind coaching and preparation then you'll get others who have their own method who will then find someone else's method ridiculous and it's just kind of reflects <laughs> yeah. how the how the human brain is very it's it's just a very very difficult thing to train, isn't it? Because there's still there's so much going on. There's so much, so many synapses firing. It's such a complicated thing. We're only just sort of starting to to understand it. You know, you talk about physical trainers. We've got a good understanding of the physical side. There's a reasonable understanding of cause and effect and and how you can best prepare yourself. But with the mind, it's so much more complicated. And because it's you know you're whatever muscles aren't conscious that they're, they're not really thinking about what they're doing they're just doing yeah. whereas the brain by definition is so it's it, it fascinating to think over the years as understanding builds there's still a lot in, in the um in the realm of Euro, neuroscience a huge amount still to still to learn what might be possible down the line in terms of optimizing what 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 can be done yeah i mean you know we, we should probably also touch on some of the strange things that happen 
to these people. Some, some of these people have reported stuff to me, which is just weird about when, when they've been in these moments. You know, the classic thing with, with racing in particular, time slowing down is one of these things that really um, is key to, to performing. You know, if, if, you, if you're going around a corner which should last one second, but it's, to you it's feeling like it's lasting 10 seconds, then you're going to nail that corner better. You're going to find, that, find these, uh, you know, every single apex and everything else and and so, so many of these um reports when, when i've been speaking to these people have, have been of how time slows down and in those critical moments i mean we, we can all have this experience actually in an unfortunate way there's car crashes um even even you know the likes of us if we have a car crash a classic report is that you know, the, the, as, as the as the windscreen smashes, it looks like each individual shard is is sort of breaking one by one. It's just it's it's a it's a result of the brain speeding up, and those for, for, for what is for, for the rest of us a, a critical scary moment, and and that happens to racing drivers as well in those in those sort of moments. But but they are able to harness this ability and 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 sort of convert it into sort of their brain is working at a heightened state while they are um, performing. You know, and 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 other. Other senses can 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 sort of change how how they work as well. I mean, some some drivers have told me about how their hearing shuts down, or then um, they, they some have said they, their color vision goes. They start stop seeing in they start seeing in black and white, and um, and other senses can increase their sensitivity. We hear people racing drivers smelling grass, and then and then you know halfway around the lap, there's a, <laughs> some freshly cut grass or something like that and it's uh but it's it's this intensity of the focus whatever isn't needed disappears and then there is this one other level to it which um which we touched on at the very start which is the out the outer body experience which i know sounds fanciful it sounds ridiculous and it just sounds like how, how can that happen it's certainly it's at the very weirdest level of the of the sensations that that people have had in the zone but i've met, i've now met over a dozen racing drivers who pretty much described this very same thing happening to them um and it, it can it can vary in level again you know it's someone like um you know damon hill at suzuka in 94 when he had his best race he he was basically he described how he was letting letting um it felt like somebody else was doing it that's that's one level of the body experience and then others like emerson fittipaldi Andy Prio is a brilliant on these sort of things, and then, but then you know, others have literally told me that they they've looked down on themselves as they race, and it's uh, you know, I once asked Mika Hakkinen. Mika Hakkinen had this experience around Monaco as well, and he, he described feeling like a bird of prey looking down on himself, and um, and I said to him, listen, is it was it really like this? Could you really actually sort of look down? And he said, well, uh, yes, that's the feeling. You become so much in control of what you're doing. It's like coming out of your body. You start to see more than just forwards in the front, in the back, in the side. You can sense everything. And it, it's, it comes with this confidence, 100% concentration and knowing what you're doing. And he said it all comes into slow motion. And there's one more, if I can just, there's, there's a, a, a motorbike rider, Wayne Gardner, world champion from 30 years ago. He once, at Phillip Island, he was having a, a battle. He, he'd broken his wrist, so he was, he was off form and he, he actually didn't even want to finish. He was going to, he was just going to do five laps to show that he was entering the race and then pull in because the pain was so extreme. But he, then he saw Mick doing ahead of him and he thought, okay, I'm going to chase him down, chase him down, chase him down because he was a home crowd and everything else. So he kept going. And then at one point he just had this little light headed feeling and he, and he was just like, and, and he said, the next minute I'm looking down on myself, watching myself going around the track from about two or three meters up. And it lasted about half a lap, this sensation. And it was literally, that was it. He was actually out of his body looking down on himself. 
I have no idea how that happens. <laughs> well, well, it's interesting, isn't it? Because in kind of literal terms, obviously they're not out of their body looking down, but but the brain constructs the world around us. It's very, you know, even things like our vision is most of it is in, is inferred by the brain. We don't actually the resolution that we actually you, you can see sort of a, people constructed images that kind of show you the the base resolution of what you see. And it's appalling. Yes, what, that's right. So much of what we see is just inferred and constructed. So I guess maybe when you're operating at that level, perhaps it is possible to have a slightly different. A different perspective perhaps there's something in there that means if you do feel separate from yourself that is the ultimate manifestation of the subconscious processing so there's if you don't it's almost if you don't take it too literally that you're not literally sat on the, on the roll bar looking down at you down at yourself but it, it there, there's something there and it, and it, if I sort of mentioned what could happen in years to come you, know, you could get to a point where you can get into the zone by taking taking a pill or something <laughs> simply because you, the mechanism is understood and you know very difficult but, but the understanding of the processes and what's actually happening will, will grow to such a level that this this could happen and people will look back at what we're doing now and think oh, just like cavemen in, there, sort of, in, <laughs> well, in terms of they're doing so it's, it is interesting to think of what what may happen and there are you know there are illegal things that can be taken that do improve mental sharpness and that kind of thing so there's uh, it's it, it's really interesting that that this is this is the area where the, the difference is made and that and that we'll keep seeing developments and, and thing and, and people pushing and finding new ways to new ways to do this yeah i mean i think that it will probably <laughs> yes are we going to have now a mental drugs war is it is sport going to be infected by by this i'm sure there are probably there's already science heading in that direction and um there are all sorts of ways that people are, are are using to try and bring on these experiences, and yeah, as you say there are there are drugs which can <laughs> which which can already help even in a not a particularly positive way <laughs> towards that sort of thing. But I mean, you know, yes, just to go back to one more point on the outer body experience. You know, all I can say is that when I when I've been speaking to these people, it hasn't most most of them. Yes, it's a it's sort of a uh, a sort of metaphorical, just sort of okay. I'm not doing it anymore. But I've, honestly, there have been a couple of people who have point. I've said to them, "What? Where were you looking?" And and they have pointed up. Like even Jackie Stewart once had a had this in a crash in Kyle Army. He he uh, he 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 was it was at the first corner. He went into the wall and he said that during that he was looking down on himself from above. And I said to him, "Listen, where? Okay, where where were you?" And he pointed upwards, sort of to the top, just above him, and he. I was looking down. How, and how do you explain that? I don't know. Yeah, so, yeah I think yeah. I've talked about that. I think there's a concrete yeah. wall he's heading for. Yeah, so, that's right. So that's again the heightened, yes, that, heightened awareness that's of time exactly slowing down the, because, yeah. you're, because you're thinking this is a bit of a crisis moment. Yes. So you better pay true. attention and see if that's there's anything true. you can anything you can do. It's, yeah. Uh, yeah, it's, it's amazing, isn't it? But I, I think the thing I like is it is, it is it, while it's a really mysterious kind of realm, you can't ever be in anyone else's head and understand it, but it is also relatable. So you watch these Grand Prix drivers and you can relate it to that. You know, everyone's got their own areas of expertise where they've probably had manifestations of this. And it's, it's, yeah, it's, it's, I think what makes sport relentlessly engaging and how people get into that. You know, you mentioned the, the kind of peaks in other sport. You think like Snooker, Ronnie O'Sullivan's five and a half minute, one, four, seven, which he won't have spent much time thinking. During, oh, he's just, he's just going around doing, which is just what makes it so, so remarkable. And obviously, in itself, something like that—that that, that's because I do I do enjoy snooker, and it's one of those things that as soon as you're on for a one four seven, that's the first thing that's going to knock you out of being in the zone because you start thinking about it. So, oh, this is quite big. This could be this could be good, and but somehow you you know a great talent like Ronnie Sullivan was just able to plow through and do something 
almost impossible. Yeah, I mean, and as, as you say, whatever our own area of expertise is, that is where we are most likely to be finding the zone. And if everyone has these um, experiences available to them, you know, in, it, and as I say, in, in things where we're not doing it very often, like maybe we maybe we play a bit of snooker or whatever, we might have an amazing break, um, <laughs> but it won't be at Ronnie Sullivan's level. But we all have our whatever work we do, particularly or whatever sub, a hobby that we do relentlessly. We're going to have higher moments of these in the zone, and the higher it gets, the higher it gets, the more intense it gets, and the more you look back and think, "Wow!" And if you're already performing at a high level in something, and then you hit the zone, that's that's when absolute magic can happen. Oh, it's a fascinating topic. So yeah, I'd urge everyone to pick up a copy of Overdrive, Formula One in the Zone. And in the Zone, Overdrive's the Formula One focused one. In the Zone has all sorts of sports, both by Clyde Brolin. They're available all over the place. So uh, so well worth uh, well worth getting. Should, should we just, because uh, you, you did send me some audio from, from the late Dan Weldon. Uh, two-time Indianapolis 500 women, IndyCar champion, sadly, uh, sadly no longer with us. But it's just an interesting little example in a driver's own words of what it's like to be in the zone it was obviously not done for broadcast so it's not not broadcast top broadcast quality but you can hear what he's saying and it is fascinating to to to, to hear what he has to say yeah i mean I, I i got extraordinarily lucky with my time i mean i spoke to him after he won his second indy 500 in in 2011 and of course sadly it was it wasn't long before um uh yeah we lost him but it's it it was just to, to me. I mean, Dan Weldon was just—I I hadn't met him before because I spent most of my time working in Formula One, and and for whatever reason, our paths hadn't crossed. And but he was just so brilliant with me and so willing to explain what happens at these amazing moments. And and I think the example of this little clip is that he—it shows how what can happen when you just let your natural game flow. Because you know, in 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 racing, the real natural game is. Is steering and and pressing the brake and accelerator. That's what it's all about. But in you know at the very top level, it's that's all just taken as red. You're doing all that right, and then it's it's there are there are new elements to to what you're doing, and in particularly around indie, you've you've got to absolutely nail every single bit of the technical side of the car. And it's just the way he was describing that that just summed up for me being in the zone. Well, here is Dan Weldon summing up being in the zone. On the last 20 laps of this Indy 500, the strategy I was on, I had to drive flat out, just making sure that every one of those laps was the best it possibly could be. And I was adjusting the weight jacker and the roll bars, I thought, quite frequently, but the team showed me the data after. I was doing them without even knowing. It was natural. I'm like, no, I wasn't doing it that much. They were like, you were absolutely doing it. And I'm like, there's no way. They showed me the data. Every lap, every single corner, I made an adjustment. And I didn't even know. Those last 20 laps were my fastest lap time. When you get in the zone, you have the ability to do things totally naturally, especially when you're in a confident time of your career. You, you do things and you're like, really? Well, there's plenty more of that in, in the books. You've spoken to basically everyone, as far as I can tell, in the world of, uh, of motorsport and, uh, and the wider world of sport. So it's, it's fascinating. There's countless examples. We could have talked for hours about this. So thanks very much, Craig Rowling, for your, for your time and insight. Absolute pleasure. Thanks very much for having me, Ed. 
Uh, well, do check out autosport.com for all the latest from Formula One and the rest of the world of motorsport on our plus subscriber area, where for a small fee you can read the world's best motorsport journalists on a wide range of topics. Autosport magazine, of course, is out every Thursday. Check out sister titles motorsport.com, F1 Racing magazine out monthly, and Motorsport News out every Wednesday. And if you fancy a flutter, download the Pit Stop Betting app. The Autosport podcast, of course, is out every Monday and Thursday via iTunes, all the usual podcast dispensaries. You can like us on, on the Spreaker website where our, our, our podcast is is hosted. Thanks for joining us. We'll be back soon with another Also Sport podcast. Music is 6am by Trilo, written by Marcus Simmons. See soundcloud.com forward slash Trilo Music. Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. This year is your year, even if you also said that in 2022. And however you want to make a splash, Mother Nature can help you every step of the way with Wool Runner Mizzles from Allbirds. Wool Runner Mizzles are shoes made from premium, supernatural, weather-repellent materials. So you can jump into this year with both feet, rain or shine. The high-top uppers are made from temperature-regulating, moisture-wicking merino wool treated with durable puddle guard technology to keep you dry and comfy. And you can take confident strides with supernatural rubber treads that grip for all-conditioned traction and sugarcane-based sweet foam midsoles that put a little bounce in each step. Allbirds is constantly innovating to increase the performance and longevity of their earth-friendly materials. So even on your toughest outings, you'll wear out before your shoes do. This year, make a splash without worrying about getting your feet wet with Wool Runner Mizzles from Allbirds. Discover your perfect pair at allbirds.com today. That's A-L-L-B-I-R-D-S.com. Social Podcast Network. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, avoid, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus.